In this episode of 2036, the podcast. I think as we think about the kinds of things that contribute to, as a clinician called big T and little t traumas,、mm. you know, when we hold marginalized identities and we live in a place where those identities are not accepted, where it's fundamentally on a minute by minute basis feels unsafe, that's traumatic. It gets into the groundwater of the, the lives that we lead. Part of my learning and my growth as a professional, as a human in this world, and certainly as an administrator, is you know how do I leverage my identities and the access I have, the the privileges that I have to help create space for those who may not automatically, because of our society, have that space and voice, so that they can use them and help inform all of us. Hello and welcome to 2036, the podcast. My name is Munir Mcjani. Today with us we have James Raper, who is the inaugural Associate Vice President of Health, Wellbeing, Access, and Prevention. In his role, he oversees Counseling and Psychological Services (CAPS), the Office of Health Promotion, the Office of Respect and Student Health Services (SHS). Raper comes to Emory from Wake Forest University in June. At Wake Forest, he served as the first Assistant Vice President for Health and Wellbeing. He has more than 20 years of experience in higher education in the areas of direct counseling and consultation, collaborative strategic planning, administrative leadership, and classroom teaching. Raper holds a PhD in counseling and clinical supervision from Syracuse University. Thank you, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. In just reading your bio, when I was reading it over earlier, the Office of Respect and Student Health Services. Tell me a little bit more about that. The Office of Respect focuses on survivors of relationship and sexual violence on campus, as well as their allies. So we want to make sure that all students who identify as potentially being a survivor, who have questions about whether they might, might identify as being a survivor, or if they are a friend,、uh, a loved one who wants to know how to best support one of their loved ones around that. So that's the office that that would.、Uh, Walk them through those processes, provide trauma-informed support and advocacy through medical care, through、um, conduct processes, judicial processes, and the、uh, outside community. So that's the Office of Respect. In your work, are you seeing? You've got such a vast experience in this. Are you seeing that that sort of trauma in in the acts that lead to that are increasing or decreasing, given kind of the world that we live in today, where we're more aware of our actions? And then is that kind of convoluted by more folks maybe more open to having those conversations about it as well? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a hard question to answer whether or not it's happening more. In part because we have the wonderful experience of people feeling more empowered to name their experiences as、mm-hmm. survivors and expanding what we mean by trauma. So you know, historically, when I was even in in grad school, let's say twenty twenty five years ago, trauma meant you know being in a, an armed conflict, being in a a car accident. Being, you know, let's say robbed at gunpoint, and we now understand much more deeply,、uh, with much more nuance, how being exposed to our experiences where our life may be threatened, but also our just sense of safety is threatened, or we're exposed to that even in an adjunct way, that that impacts our body and our brain for a very long time, including when we're just growing up as as、um, children, our kind of developmental years. So the more awareness we have, when we then intersect, increase. Increasing awareness with increasing op- opportunities to use our voice, and then more support services that name that as this is the place to come to talk about that or to learn more about that. We're going to have more incidents of stories around that, and that's、mm. I'm I'm thrilled to hear those stories as much as they are stories of pain. The way we heal is through being able to talk about that in a safe place. 
Yeah. And to start to be able to talk about that, do you think it's the creation of safe spaces? Do you think it's finally acknowledging that victim blaming has been happening for so long? Or do you think it's how society or even the campus at Emory has become more open to having these conversations? Yeah, I think, of course, it's an intersection of all those things. I think as we think about um, the kinds of things that contribute to, as a clinician called big T and little t traumas, Mm. you know, when we hold marginalized identities and we live in a place where those identities are not accepted, where it's fundamentally on a minute by minute basis feels unsafe, that's traumatic. It gets into the groundwater of the, the lives that we lead. And certainly holding the privileged identities I hold, part of my learning and my growth as a professional, as a human in this world, and certainly as an administrator is you know, how do I leverage my identities and the access I have, the the privileges that I have to help create space for those who may not automatically, because of our society, have that space and voice so that they can use them and help inform all of us. So in a separate conversation that we have on the podcast with Dean Gly, we talk about how these things are popping up now, right? For generations, we had students graduate from Emory without the need for these things. A lot of those individuals may say that students now just aren't thick-skinned enough or don't have the grit that needs to be resilient. What do you say to that? This is like one of my favorite questions because mostly I love pushing really hard against it. I'm now, uh, I don't know how old you are, but I'm now an, an old person in, in our costume's <laughs> eyes and I'm 46. And um, what I have to acknowledge and I invite all of my contemporaries and, you know, the generation before me and the generation after to consider that students nowadays, this generation of the traditionally aged college student have been exposed to much more in their, let's say, 20 years of life than any one of us were in those first 20 years of our lives, which are, as we all know, we think about it, fundamental to our development later on. And for our students, they've been post 9-11, they've mm. been post social media, they've been post smartphones, post many, you know, a decades long war, as well as having to prepare for active shooters in their elementary and middle school and, and high schools. If we just acknowledge all those things, the hypervigilance that can create in our brains when they are still forming is significant. And it's, I think it's unfortunate if anyone were to think this is about fragility. I think they're incredibly resilient. And our job is to meet them where they are, not to question that they shouldn't be there. They're telling us this is what their needs are. And I believe our job and it's why I love working at, in higher education in a place like Emory is we have this intimate community where we actually can frame and scale our services to meet students where they are so that when they do graduate, they're prepared for the world that awaits them. It's one of the reasons I wanted to come here from my former position is how ready Emory is to help students get to that place. So you talked about how so many more things are happening in such a shorter amount of time, right? And this is a bit of an unfair question to you and perhaps a more philosophical one. Sure. Why do you think that is? Are we just more receptive to things happening? Is it the news and social media? Is it the connected world that we're dealing with? Or is the world just going to hell in a handbasket? I mean, I think it's a very hard time to be a human. There's a lot more that we're all exposed to. The, the difference is you and I both have life experience. We have a greater sense of ourselves by the fact that we are not 20 and 22. If we not think about where we are in the world right now, but think about what we know about college students, Mm. whether it was in 1970 or 1990 or 2010, what are the traditional things that college students have to deal with? And it's figuring out, my shorthand is figuring out what's going on in here in our head. What do we think? What do we believe? You know, questioning our parents, uh, do we align with their values or not? 
Um, what am I interested in in terms of vocation? What are the things that get me going? What do I not like anymore? And then what's going on between us? Mm. What's going on between me and the people around me? Uh, the interpersonal relationships. What groups do I want to align with? How do I learn to be assertive uh, in, in whether they're intimate relationships or, or platonic friendships? How do I use voice and figure out the kinds of people that are like my people and find my tribe, if you will? So those are things that are transcendent no matter the generation. Mm -hmm. And then we add on these extra layers of um, demand for today's college student. I think that's that's the challenge and the opportunity, the challenge of being a college student now and the opportunities that, that um, await us as a university to help support them. Yeah. So I love that you talked about finding your voice, yeah. right? And in a different episode, we talk about kind of these, the role of the translator to help folks find their voice, especially for immigrant populations or first generation mm. students or, you know, people of color and black students. How do you encourage them to do that? So my lens, it's, it's certainly biased, but my lens um, is to look at what are the barriers for that voice to that voice to come out. And because I would not expect a, a 17, 18, 19 year old to actually know what their voice mm. is yet, I think that's unrealistic. I think that's part of a process for right. them, right? And our job is to is to be kind of like a a, um, a laboratory for them to practice that in a safer place uh, at a, at a, in higher education. So one of the barriers that I see uh, it's why again I, I was attracted to Emory as an institution. It's why I worked at Wake Forest previously is the preponderance of um, toxic perfectionism mm. um, and the shame that comes along with that. So um, I define shame uh, as, as the belief that there's something fundamentally wrong with me. Okay? So many of us um, carry around this or have carried this around in, in us. And so shame is never correct. So I, this is me uh, playing therapist. What I would often say to my clients, it's never right. You need to start with it's never accurate. But it's very, very difficult to untangle from our belief about ourselves and our identity. So one of the ways that sometimes we, this shame manifests in college students at really high performing, highly competitive universities is this sense that I have to get it all right. I have to get it all right now. And if I don't, if I take one little misstep, then it will all fall apart. Yeah. And that will happen because there's something fundamentally wrong with me and everyone else has it fine. And obviously we know social media can, can sort of facilitate this as well. Like everyone else seems like they're doing great and what's right, wrong with right. me this sort of curated identity that gets put out there. So I think for me, being able to detangle, to deconstruct this, this false sense that I, I have to have it all together or it all fall apart and instead flip it very much on its head and assert and model as a, at the university level that it's mistakes, it's failure that actually is where the growth happens um, and I need to be able to operationalize that with all of my colleagues for students to see. So I want to be able to talk about truly when James has fallen on his face and it was, it was not a good sight to see, but what I took from that so that when folks see, whether it's me or other leaders on campus, they see someone who is filled with mistakes, not someone who has glided through life. Mm. Um, and that will hopefully, the more we do that and we, we talk openly about that, create pathways for folks to not feel um, like they have to like white knuckle their life and, and hold on really tight for feel of, fear of uh, failure. 
I feel like I should be laying down on a couch during this conversation. We can, we can make that happen. Yeah, we should. Sure. Yeah. Cause even a dozen years out of college, it's still things that I still deal with, yeah. right? In a professional world as someone who's defined success multiple different ways, but you still kind of have these, you know, uh, monsters in your closet, if right. you will. Because we're human. Yeah. So you talked a lot about your desire to come to Emory and why you wanted to come here. What are some of your immediate goals to help ensure students' well-being and growth? So my shorthand for what well-being is that every member of our community can bring their full selves to being here at Emory. But that may sound like a little bit of a cliche even. Mm -hmm. I really mean it. And so what that can look like is, you know, if I'm a first generation student, am I able to fully access all that Emory has to offer to support my sense of well-being, of leading a life that is fulfilling, of academic and intellectual as well as personal relational growth? If I am someone who inhabits a larger body, fill in the blank, that's those same kinds of questions? Am I someone who holds some other kind of marginalized identity that are intersecting? Do I see myself represented here in a way that makes me feel like I can present all of myself in a safe way that's Mm. supported and invited, not just tolerated? When we have a community that does that, that is a more well community. When we have a community that doesn't look at happiness as the goal. Again, I'm a therapist. Happiness for me is not the goal. It's the ability to be a human is the goal. And if we create spaces where I can have a day where I'm feeling depressed, I can have five days where I'm feeling depressed, or I'm having struggle with my anxiety, I'm just having mental health, that that's all normalized and not that I can only talk about the times when I'm doing great. And then maybe if I'm very lucky, find a counselor or a pastor or an imam I can talk it out with. But this is all accepted, normalized, and in a community, everyone feels like they own a sense of self-efficacy that I know how to help someone who's experiencing their mental health that day. That's one particular way that I I see us as a community being able to grow in really important ways. Yeah. So... This is really interesting. Happiness is not a goal. So help me understand that a little bit more, right? How do you tease apart being a human and then the goal of being happy? For me, speaking for myself and the way I would present this, particularly as a mental health professional, and then now as it informs larger kind of well-being strategy, that it's a red herring maybe is a Mm -hmm. better way of putting it. If we put up on a pedestal that I'm trying to seek happiness, then anything that's not happy can sometimes, because we can, our brains are wired to think dichotomously or make it sort of black or white. When in reality, life is very, very gray and there's very little black or white. So if we present this thing as a zero or one, a a happiness or the absence of happiness, Mm. then I think it sets sets us up for unrealistic expectations. But instead, if we say maybe the goal of life, and this is again, just just James talking, is is meaning and purpose, living a life that is more holistic, that is more, I struggle with the word balanced, but maybe balanced or or a constant balancing. I think experiences of happiness will come along the way. And the more we can also, as, as we were talking about, you know, living a life that's more well, that allow each other to have mental health. It is also the sad times. It is also the painful times. It is also the discomfort. The more that we learn how to tolerate those life discomforts, the more we also then appreciate them when they're not there and we have times of joy and excitement and compassion. Um, So I just see it. I want to pull the lens back away from happiness to include many other things. You know, one of the things, Meneer, that that, uh, 
I was actually just read a quote about this. Um, uh, Pima Chodron is a is a Buddhist monk who I really really like, and uh, I'm not going to get the quote right, but she, she she gives sort of physical body somatic examples um, of distress tolerance. In in my mm. field, it's 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 something we talk about a lot with other humans and therapy is notice, noticing distress and learning how to tolerate it, um, how to listen to it. What is yeah. it telling us? And we talked about trauma before. It's another another example the more that we listen to our bodies our brains our feelings and certainly those around us uh the more we can find the wisdom in in what our body is trying to tell yeah. us and that may sound kind of new agey i promise it's not because i'm the least new agey therapist <laughs> you'll find but I've, i found that to be true over the years yeah so I, I actually did certain suicide prevention work for almost 10 years internally That's in the awesome. community. And one of the big misconceptions that you often see, or one of the, the things leading to it is the statement of I'm unhappy, mm. right? And you talked about that a lot. And you also have a lot of training in experience in suicide prevention. Yeah. How do you plan on bringing that in and kind of really folding that into the Emory community? When I think about what I've learned in 20 years of being in suicide prevention and intervention and, and how do we take those themes and then broaden them to not be only about suicide, it's about being able to talk about hard things. Right. One of the misconceptions that folks have about talking about suicide is that if we name the word, if we ask the question, right. when's the last time you thought about suicide, that it's going to put it in someone's head. And we know through tons and tons of research over and over again not only does it not increase risk asking the question actually decreases the right. risk because it destigmatizes it for the person yes and it gives them permission in a way that sometimes because of stigma they've kept this secret and so now it's oh wait a minute you presented this in a way that maybe you're a safe person i could actually name this and one of the fundamental interventions for uh, an individual or thinking about suicide is connection so mm -hmm. the suicidal mind is very much one that feels incredibly isolated, even when they're surrounded by people and loved ones. Their mind feels very alone, and they're sure they're sometimes sure that they are a burden. And so the more that we can lower the bar for relationship, the more we can mm -hmm. demonstrate in a one-on-one -on -one way that I am here demonstrating my love and compassion for you, and I'm not going to look away, I'm not going to shy away in talking about suicide or plans or how long you've had ideation that helps to decrease the the grip that sometimes thoughts of suicide have yeah and so how do we create safe systems so mm. that there are people able to use their voices my goal is to make sure i'm looking at both quantitative data so large-scale assessments looking at health and well-being of our students and just as importantly if not more so the individual and of one qualitative stories mm. i'm deeply, deeply interested to know what are their experience with accessing services on campus, how they experienced health, well-being, mental health on campus by really demonstrating I'm actually open to hearing what's going on here. Then, and only then, can we really develop a strategy to meet your community's needs. One thing that I wanted to touch on that has recently been developing a lot more is the impact of trauma long term. There's an article that I read a while back that talked about even how slavery is getting built into the DNA of black communities. Can you expand a little bit more on the impact that it is having? And is there new groundbreaking research that's doing this or is it just something that hasn't been studied in the past? I don't know that I'm as in touch with the most recent research around the 
impact in, in even in our DNA of mm-hmm. trauma. Um, I've had a little bit more exposure just in some some reading to the impact on the DNA of um, Holocaust survivors mm-hmm. and passed down. But I would imagine very much that there's sure. some, some parallels there. To go back to something we talked about earlier, I think what we know more is that we don't know enough about how it shows up. Partly, I think, because we tend to silence ourselves mm. for all the reasons we've already talked about and that we can engage in self-blame. If I, I do not hold marginalized identities, but my colleagues, friends, peers, partners who do have shared with me their experiences of questioning themselves because we live in a society that white supremacy exists, those who do not hold those identities can sometimes choose to, to, to feel like they have to say, well, it must be me, as opposed to owning that this is about something much larger and much more insidious that we have to reckon with as, a, as an institution. And, and so if I am going to make this about me selfishly, then what I do have control over is how, again, how I leverage my position and ascribe power to address those things. So I'll give you a quick little example. Um, When I was hiring uh, our executive director of counseling and psychological services, and in our first round interview, I put in a question about how, inviting to consider, how would you as a executive director address the issue of white supremacy Mm. and how it shows up in the mental health of our students at Emory? And I did it because I think it's important to acknowledge. I also did it to signal the kind of director I want in terms of candidates to be interested in. And for folks who are like, that feels uncomfortable for me to talk about, then that's important. That's okay. Right. But that's important for me to know. And then what was a really unintended consequence, and the reason I picked on this uh, as an example, is that I've gotten feedback both times I did these searches that this was actually ended up being a recruiting tool. They began talking in their communities about this question that's being asked. And there's not a right answer to it, but the ability to talk openly and say the word white supremacy, just like you were talking earlier about saying the word suicide, saying these things that we know exist and it's the water that we're all swimming in, but we feel shame or anxiety or whatever to name. It really does help us transcend through those things to maybe dress them a little bit more openly and honestly. What do you think five, 10 years from now will be the most visible changes due to your work at Emory? My vision for like a a more well campus here is one where we're able to talk openly without shame about all of our humanity. We're able to support students in all of their identities when their needs present, and they're able to feel comfortable on their end, raising their hand, you know, literally or figuratively, I think I need something right now. And I'm not quite sure what it is, actually, because I'm still, by the way, a college student figuring out life. (laughs) Absolutely. And that we are structured um, and resourced to meet those needs, that our physical spaces are inviting and reflective of the integrative and collaborative Mm -hmm. work that has to happen in a college and a university. And that's one of the real opportunities that Emory has in front of it is to push against the natural silos that exist at any institution. To do holistic work, you have to be collaborative. And so in some ways, holism and, and siloing are antithetical. And we need to make sure that we are breaking down those silos as much as possible, whether it's around communication or deep, deep collaboration and how mental health, spiritual meaning, nutrition intersect, for example. One of the things that I read about you is that you've worked on collaborative strategic planning. In the world today where everything seems so binary, so polarized, how do we go about doing that? How I'm doing it so far, which is the way I would do it, I'm I'm sure there are many ways to do it, is to first find out who are the positional leaders who are most invested in the work that they have brought me here to do. I'm calling those Mm -hmm. my champions. And and this includes students, by the way. I want to go to them and say, all right, talk to me more. 
and then tell me who else I need to meet with. And so this is the snowball sampling approach mm. of listening to stories, understanding the different positions. What are the themes here? What are the biggest gaps? What are the things that are most critical for us to resource or address or massage? And then develop some planning for that. And then I want to balance that out with what does the data say? Mm. And how does our data at Emory compare to our comparison universities, our aspirant universities, and see kind of how we're doing. That also will help inform developing strategy. I'm really, really attentive to the folks who do not have voice yeah. because it's much more likely, everything else being equal, that we're going to have students who, or others who have positional power, are going to be more likely to have a, a greater sense of well being than those who are marginalized and silenced. And collecting those stories have been incredibly valuable. Eventually, those will turn into themes that will then turn into programs, uh, resources, and uh, longer term strategies. And I think that you nailed it. It's definitely long-term strategy. It's not something that you can come in and say, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to do it without listening first. So student flourishing is something that we're talking a lot about at Emory, especially sure. with this 2036 campaign. I think you really bring a unique perspective to that with really starting at the core of the student. What does student flourishing mean to you? For me, student flourishing means that we create the, the foundation within students that they can then then make those leaps both at Emory and after Emory to, to flourish. Um, so do they have the capacities for reflection? And that's an important part mm. of our, our flourishing initiative is that self-reflection. It was funny, I can't believe I haven't used the word mindfulness yet because it's like my thing, <laughs> is, is um, one of my goals in the early you know, year or two of being here is to develop interventions in a variety of ways, both micro and macro, that emphasize mindfulness skills. And something I've, I've talked with all of our senior leaders about, if we can create capacities within each of us, but particularly our students, to be able to notice in the moment without judgment, which is my, again, shorthand right. for, for mindfulness, then we are giving them the skills to then reflect and explore where they find their meaning and they find their purpose. Mm. And so breaking it down to not jumping ahead to go find your meaning, but what do you need and what can we provide you to go do that? Yeah, where's the uh, starting point? Right. So I think that's the individual, uh, at the individual level, how we create an environment for flourishing. I think at the community level, it's being able to have the conversations of being human with one another. So again, one other goal I have is to be able to have tables of students probably over food because that's a good motivator yes. for all of us. It's really one of my love language where we can talk about, um, we talked about earlier about failures and be able to see each other as human and celebrate the fact that we have moved through our failures and what we've grown throughout. I think those two things are really fundamental to what eventual flourishing mm. can, can really look like. So do you have any tips or strategies for folks of, A, how to find a good therapist that's a good match for you and questions that you would ask them before they join oh, their practice? I love this question. This is good. What I really invite folks to do, and I did this when I was a therapist, is let's give it a few sessions, mm. okay? Now, what this really requires by giving it a few sessions is a, a deep, deep invitation and modeling that the reason I want to give it a few sessions, I need you to need to know what your experience is of me and mm. if this is working for you. How would you know? What are your expectations? So I think as we talk about folks, let's take me out of being the therapist role, but instead just kind of giving some advice, yeah. think about going into it 
what are you hoping for? What is, what is driving you to go um, seek this out? Uh, why therapy, basically? Um, what would you like to be different in your life? Those are great starter questions. Um, how would you know um, what's the distress you're trying to address or what's the growth you're trying to achieve? And how clear are you about that with your therapist, this new therapist you're trying out? I think uh, you need to reflect on, or we all need to reflect on, what identities, if any, are important to us in feeling. Do I need to feel seen and heard? It just makes me feel better to know that um, the person across from me holds some similar identities to me. It's one of the reasons why, you know, let's say starting about 10 years ago, Counseling Center started putting pe- people's pictures right, on. Right. It was just one of these things that they never did before because they didn't think they needed to because, again, we, we were living with a lot of blinders and bias. And then we acknowledged the more that we diversify our communities, rightly so, in higher education, the more they, we need to feel, students need to feel seen. It doesn't mean they end up seeing them. But they, there's a value, I think, that they infer um, by having a more um, diverse visual representation of diversity in, in counseling centers, for example, but not, not exclusive to that. For some, it's not important or they realize it doesn't become critical for them to, uh, for their therapist to hold those identities. But it's certainly one that everyone should feel deep permission to seek out. It is harder to find a black male psychologist. So right. my... Um, my black male friends are, are, would name that frequently. It's just really hard yeah. to do. And um, I think the, where the city I came from to, to Atlanta, there's a lot more diversity of, of identities available for us as, as therapists. So um, do identities matter to you? To what degree? Um, does age, for example, age is another example. Sometimes folks are like, I don't want someone that looks like they just got out of college right, being my right, therapist. Yeah. I need someone who looks like they've like lived some years. <laughs> yes. But I've heard the exact opposite. Like, I don't know if this person's going to get me and why I'm, yeah. you know, doing what I'm doing. I need someone who's like maybe 30, you know? So it's, a, w- there's no wrong answer. It's whatever matters to you because yeah. it's that sense of like, I'm going to feel a little safer mm. to push myself to say some things that normally I've just kind of kept inside. So I think those are a few starters. The last thing I'll probably end with is, is it's okay to say you're not working for me. Mm. Now, that takes some assertiveness, which sometimes is what people are coming in to address. Right. They don't use their yeah. voice or know that they know how to. So I try to, um, what, oh, I was doing this work, I try to start the off sessions mm-hmm. uh, in those first session or two in, in developing a relationship to, to name that and say, mm-hmm. I don't have to be all things to all people as a therapist. I'm not the best therapist for every single human. So I want to make sure I help you. If it's not me, I'm going to help you find the right person. That's part of our job too, by the way, as therapists yeah. ethically, is to make referrals mm-hmm. Uh, as we learn about what this person's needs are. Um, so that's something we're all trained to do as well. So for any of our students or alums or anyone listening to this podcast who may not be in therapy right now, but want to practice mindfulness, do you have any tips? Because it's so hard when you're in yes. the moment to practice it. It's yes. always on my car ride home that I'm like, ah, crap, I <laughs> don't do it then. Oh, well, now. you can, but keep your eyes open. <laughs> Some tips on, on practicing mindfulness. Um, let me just acknowledge that the first few times you do it, even if it's for 15 seconds, it's going to be hard. You're going to not want to do it and you're going to be distracted. That is not failure. Mm. Okay. So I'm addressing perfectionism as we, as we talk about uh, practicing mindfulness. Mindfulness, if we go back to that shorthand of it is noticing in the moment without judgment. So if I were to sit in my chair right now with both of my feet on the ground, just sitting comfortably with rounded shoulders is so super fine. And just 
notice, I won't give you too much dead air, I promise, and just notice how is my body feeling right now? How is my heart beating? Noticing when I breathe in, there's cool air coming through my nose. I don't have to breathe deeply. I don't have to make weird sounds. I don't need bells. I can just be with my body. Also, my noticing is what thoughts am I having? It is not about having a blank brain. It's noticing that there are my thoughts and I can also let them go. So when I was, when I'm doing mindfulness work with students or clients, I'm inviting them to think about their thoughts as being leaves on a brook mm. that's going from left to right. And you just notice the leaf and it floats away. This takes a lot of practice because we have so many intrusive thoughts. Our brains are used to cycling at a particular uh, RPM. And so the more that we can learn to detach, when we have an intrusive thought, we go, oh, I've gotten distracted again. That's okay. I'm just going to let that float away and come back to my breath. That's a great kind of starter, I think. Yeah. If you only do it for 30 seconds and then tomorrow you try it for 35 seconds, way to go. That's awesome. Yeah. Any way that you can enter into it, again, without judgment, that feels easy, uh, you know, a low bar for entry. Washing the dishes is one that people talk a lot for folks who are kind of my age and we have a lot to do. And But it's something you're forced to do in a particular moment. And there's, there's sensations that you can notice. There's the heat of the water. There's the suds. There's the smell of the dish soap or whatever. There's the scrubbing. So you can really pivot it into a lot of things, believe it or not, um, and take a little bit just to notice without judgment. And that's a yeah. great, great start. Well, if anyone wants to be mindful over my sink and wash my dishes, <laughs> I will invite you over anytime. I genuinely really appreciate everything that you're bringing, not just to our table in this podcast, but to Emory. I'm so excited to see this vision that you have for it come to life. Thank you so much for everything that you're doing. And to those listening, I hope that you will take away that everything starts with listening, whether it's suicide prevention or creating a safe space. Listen to your people. Don't get fooled by this binariness of happiness, but rather pursue things that bring you meaning and purpose. Thank you once again for joining us. 2036 The Podcast is developed and produced by Emory's Division of Advancement and Alumni Engagement. To learn more about 2036, Emory's campaign to transform the future, visit 2036.emory.edu.